Thanks, Deb. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Nick. I have the privilege of serving here on staff as the pastor for student ministries. And I feel like I can say this now that Thanksgiving is over, so I want to be one of the first to wish you guys a very Merry Christmas as we enter into this season. I, I do feel like if I, if I do it before Thanksgiving, there, there's kind of two groups of people, the ones who want to hurt me and the ones who are like way overjoyed about it. So now that we're past it, we just want to be able to say Merry Christmas to you. But we also want to let you know in the spirit of Thanksgiving how thankful we are for you. And I don't know if you saw it when you walked in this morning, but in the main lobby as you exit, we actually have donut holes, we have uh, flavored coffee syrups, and we actually have a, a cider punch as well that will be out there for you. Just our way of saying thank you for, for being a part of this with us. Thanks for making Hershey Free your home. Thanks for, for making this a part of your family and journeying with us as we live out our mission of Live, Love, Lead. And so we want to just say thank you to you in a very tangible way. So please feel free to help yourself as you head out this morning. It will be in the lobby. Hot coffee, hot cider, flavored syrups, and donuts for you, just as a way of saying thank you for journeying with us. This morning, I have the privilege of kicking off our series for Christmas called In the Waiting. And I don't know about you, but waiting is not something I excel at. It's just not. I don't know if it's because I was born in New Jersey. I don't know if it's because I come from a, a family of four boys that we just don't know what slow down looks like. I, I don't know. I mean, ADD, who knows, right? All the things. Um, but this past summer, Elise and I actually got to celebrate 10 years of marriage together. It's awesome. And we were really, really excited about that. And we said, hey, you know, we've been married 10 years. We've known each other 17. We want to do something special for our anniversary. I, when we got married, we made the, a decision for the date that we got married. The date was important to us, but we didn't think about the date as it lined up with working student ministries because July is a very busy month in student ministry world. So we said, okay, let's postpone our, our anniversary trip till September and do something we haven't done before. So what did two 30-something adults do for their 10th anniversary? We went to Disney World. I don't know who knew that, who's been stalking my wife's Instagram, but yes, that's totally what we did. We went to Disney World. Um, it was something that we had never really done before. Um, Elise had gone there a couple times as a kid. I'd been there maybe twice. I don't remember really much of either of those prior. But we got there, and it was amazing. We got there, it's like, I mean, you get that whole Disney experience, right? You show up, you're like, oh, it's so pretty, right? And, like, you're walking around, and you, like, do all the things. But you know what you do a lot of? Waiting. And that's not in the brochure. They don't go to you, sign up, and commit to waiting in line for six hours a day. They don't tell you that. But it's like from the moment you get out of your room, you wait. You wait to get on the transportation to get to the park. Then you wait at the park to go through security. When you wait after security, now you're waiting to go through the ticket booth. Then after waiting at the ticket booth, you have to wait to get your coffee because you need coffee because it's early. Then you wait for the line to get into the ride or the experience. And some of them you don't wait too long. Others you wait hours for, for like a three-minute ride. And I, I, I sat there, and it was a great time. Elise and I loved it. We got to ride Rise of the Resistance multiple times over, which was fantastic. But as we were leaving on our last day, we're walking out of our room, and I looked at her, and I said, you know what? This is a great trip, and I'm really thankful we got to do this together. I am so done with waiting in lines. I can't wait to be home. I don't have to wait for anything. And then you know what I did? I waited in more lines. Because I had to go down, I had to wait for the transportation to the airport. Then after I got off the transportation at the airport, I had to wait to check my luggage. Then after checking my luggage, I had to wait for TSA to get through security. And then after waiting for TSA, I had to wait at my gate. 
and I had to wait to get off the plane, which everybody hates. And then because I had a connecting flight, I had to wait again and again. I had to wait for my luggage, and I had to wait again for the transportation to long-term parking because it's too far to walk. And I got home, and I was just like, oh, I am so done waiting. And then I realized I had to get gas. Um, and I was just like, man, like we do a lot of waiting. And I think most of us, we understand that. Like as we hit the holiday season, as we hit Christmas time, there's a lot of waiting that happens. So here's what we, I want to do this morning. I want to start off by asking you guys a question. And the question is this, it's fairly simple. It's what are you waiting for this year? What are you waiting for? I want you to take a moment and think about that because I'm going to ask you to do something a little, little, like maybe outside your comfort zone here in a moment. But like think about what are you waiting for this year? Are you waiting for graduation? Are you waiting for the Christmas season? Are you waiting for gifts? Are you waiting for like this year just to be done? What are you waiting for? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to take 30 seconds, look to your neighbor. Maybe you don't know them yet. If not, introduce yourself because then it gets weird if you don't right? But introduce yourself. Take like 30 seconds. I want you to share with the person next to you what you're waiting for. So do that real quick. All right, some of you are really uncomfortable right now, and some of you are like, wow, I didn't know we get to talk in church. This is great. Um, so here's the thing. I know you're still, some of you are still like, oh, I haven't, I haven't shared everything because I got a lot to talk about. I get it. Me too. But here's the thing. I want to kind of take this question a step further, okay? So what are you waiting for this year? But let me, let me kind of ask you this next question. What are you waiting for this Christmas? Like, let's, let's narrow that focus a little bit. Let's think about what are you waiting for this Christmas? Maybe it's for family to arrive. Maybe it's for them to leave. We don't know, right? Some of you, I, each their own, right? I get it, right? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I can't wait for the first snowfall. Other people are like, I can't wait for the first snow to never come, right? You have other people who are like, I can't wait for presents. I can't wait for school to be out. I can't wait. What are you waiting for this Christmas? So take another 30 seconds, look to your newfound friend, and share what are you waiting for this Christmas?
I know for some of you, you're, you're still like, oh, I need to share more. Don't worry. I, you will have plenty of time. Remember, there's coffee, donuts, cider in the lobby so you can talk afterwards. For others of you, you're like, thank goodness it's done. Um, but here's the thing, right? I, I think the reality is like a lot of us are waiting. And oftentimes, like, we can think broad strokes, like, what are we waiting for this year? We can also think narrow about, like, what are we waiting for in this Christmas season? But let me ask you a third question. And the third question is this. As you wait in this season, what are you hoping for? Because here's the thing. I don't, I don't know if you've realized this or not, but oftentimes, like, there's kind of two camps when it comes to waiting, right? There's those who wait with the expectation of hope. And there are those who, in the midst of the waiting, feel hopeless. Because waiting can be really, really difficult. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the reality of waiting, like especially if you're in, in, in a place where waiting for something is really difficult, and it's not happening on our timetable, we begin to feel just hopeless. Like if you're waiting for healing, and it just doesn't come whether it's personal or maybe it's within your family. As you're waiting for financial stability, it just seems like you can't get a leg up. As you're waiting for justice, as you're waiting for that, that, that tension of anxiety and depression and, and just to leave and it never seems to, and this season just seems to, to exponentially increase it. There's really kind of two camps that we can fall into, right? It's those who, who in the midst of waiting, they can find that hope, and those who in the midst of waiting feel hopeless. And I think it's important for us to actually understand what this hope is that we're talking about, because it's easy to use words and, and not to have a definitive understanding of what they mean. But when we talk about hope, hope is the expectation as, that we as followers of Jesus have, that God will fulfill his promises because we've seen what he has done and we wait in anticipation of what he will do. You see, what we have as followers of Jesus, this hope that we have, is we can look back and go, look what my God did. Look at his faithfulness. And even in the midst of the difficulty, when we're wading through the muck and the weight of this world, when it feels like everything's just overwhelming, we can look forward with anticipation because of what he has done and what he has promised he will do. But let's be honest, that is not easy. That is actually really, really difficult because sometimes our circumstances feel overwhelming. They feel like they're just gonna snuff the life out of us. And it just feels like we don't know where to find that hope. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at a passage of scripture that opens up the Christmas story. And realistically, there are probably some of you, you here this morning who are like, Nick, I have hope. I'm doing great. And it might be easy for you to go, just click off for a moment and like go, he made me talk, now I'm going to nap. That's what he gets. Right? And that's fair. You can nap if you want to. That's your prerogative. But at the same time, let me encourage you not to. Because if you're doing great, odds are there's somebody in your life who isn't. Whether it's a coworker, a friend at school, a neighbor, somebody in your family, or the person you just talked to. 
And by being able to say this is the hope that they need to hear, this morning you can share that with them. And if you are here today or you're watching online and you're going, Nick, like, I, that's me. Like, I don't, I don't know how to see that hope. Like, I love Jesus, but this is hard. I'm in the midst of what I like to call the suck factor, right? Where you're just like, man, everything today just feels like garbage. How do I see the hope in that? So this morning, I want to look at a story of Zechariah and Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 5, but before we get there, let me set the scene for you because context is key here. Because I want you to understand how these individuals felt when it came to waiting and having hope. It's really easy sometimes when we read the Bible because we read it sometimes like a normal book, which is weird because it's not. And we read through it and we get to Malachi and we're like, ooh, end of Old Testament. And then we get to Matthew and we're like, oh, New Testament. And we're like, oh, they just seamlessly run together, right? No. There's actually 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It has a really fancy word that if you want to use, you can astound people. It's called the intertestamental period. I will not be spelling that, okay? It's not my forte. I'm not going to do that. But here's the thing, right? In this intertestamental period, things changed. Because in the Old Testament, God communicated through prophets and, and directly to his people. And then you have this intertestamental period, which, which scholars call the 400 years of silence. Meaning that God didn't communicate to his people. Things changed. God didn't engage in the same way, and all of a sudden, Israel goes through turmoil. Their nation ends up warring against itself. It becomes two different kingdoms. Both of those kingdoms end up experiencing horrible, horrible atrocities. They end up getting taken over by foreign invaders. They are taken out of their land. They become, they become captives in foreign occupied territories. Eventually, they're allowed to go back to their homeland, but they are under the, the rule of the Roman government. They have no real say in anything that happens. They are a people living in an occupied territory. You want to talk about hopelessness after being told you're the people of God. The Messiah will come through you to save this world. I am your God. You are my people. I will clear a way for you. I will protect you and give you what you need. And they're going, really, God, where are you now? That's how we enter into the Christmas story. And check out what happens here with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. 
He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can, I be, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in her years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, all the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, Zechariah could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. This is a really powerful passage of scripture. This is the foretelling of the ambassador for the Messiah, as well as the foretelling of the Messiah that was coming to right the way for people to enter into a new relationship with God. And in this moment, we are introduced to a couple of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what I want to do is I want to look at this passage just to, to make sure we are fully understanding what it's saying. Because this passage holds such profound truth for us as followers of Jesus, but we need to investigate what is actually happening here. You see, in the beginning of this passage, in verses 5 through 10, we're introduced to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they are both good Jewish people. In fact, we are told that they are some of the best people at following God. Like, when you read this passage, right, it actually says that they are righteous individuals, that they had done everything right in following the Lord. And what I want us to understand is, is sometimes I think we can get really critical as followers of Jesus and we get critical of people who, who don't have hope or people who doubt. And we're like, oh, you really don't, you don't believe in God. It's like, no, we do. It's just hard. And what I want you to see about Elizabeth and Zechariah in this passage is they love God. They did all the things. They followed after him, but it was hard to trust him because, one, as Jewish people, especially from the line of priests, of being from the, the lineage of Aaron, the first priest of Israel, and to know the promises that God had given to his nation, and the promise that he had said, I will bless you, go be fruitful and multiply, and for these two individuals to sit here childless, representing the highest priestly line in Israel, Why should we have hope? In fact, the, the passage makes it really clear. They're old. Really old. Zechariah makes that really clear. It's foot and mouth moment for him, right? One thing a husband should never do is be like, hi, I'm old. Here's my really old wife. Bad idea, dude, right? But like that's, the, that's where their heart's at. They're like, none of this has happened, God. You said you'd be faithful, God. And it hasn't happened yet, God. Why should I have hope in you, God? They believed in him. They just struggled to wait in that moment. 
They struggled to see God's plan, to have trust and hope that he was going to be the God that he had promised them, that he would fulfill his mission to them. So they believed, but they did not have hope. But they also need to understand, because here's what happens. In this radical moment, the promise of hope is given. Zechariah is chosen out of all the priests of Israel. And the odds of this happening at just this time are slim to none. There's about 18,000 priests, give or take, throughout the time of Israel, who had the obligation of going and serving on a rotation in the temple. And out of that rotation of that group of priests, they would cast a lot to figure out which individual priest would go into the temple and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. He should never have been that guy in there, but God had a plan in mind, and he goes, look, I'm going to bring you into this temple, and you're going to be offering the sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And so he goes into the temple, and we're told he goes up to the altar, and while everybody is outside worshiping and praying, Zechariah offers a sacrifice on their behalf. And what's really interesting is during this time, an angel shows up. And based upon everything else in scripture, like, angels are kind of terrifying. Like, when they have to lead with, don't be scared. Like, we don't do that. That's not our normal greeting. We're like, hey, what's up? He's like, no, don't worry. I'm not scary. I promise. And you're like, mm-hmm. right? You're terrifying. But here's the thing. What I love about this passage is Zechariah is so focused on what he's doing. He's praying for the people, and he's praying his own prayer. And he doesn't even realize that there's an angel right to his right-hand side. And he wakes up and he's like, whoa. And the angel's like, no, no, don't be scared. It's okay. Because, you know, that makes everything good, right? And he goes, no, no, don't be scared. I have something to tell you. And what I love is what this angel, what Gabriel says to Zechariah. He goes, your prayer has been heard. And if it just stopped there, we'd be like, well, which which prayer? Because he's praying for the nation, right? But he goes, no, your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. I truly believe in that moment when Zechariah was at the altar, he wasn't just praying for his people. He was continuing to pray that prayer of God. We just want to have a child. You see, because in that culture, to not have a child was actually a sign that God did not have favor on you. It was a sign that you were not part of the plan. You see, children were, were, were a way of showing inheritance, of carrying on your family name, and for them to be of the line of Aaron, to be able to carry on that priestly line, and they'd never been able to, and it became this disgrace to them. And he goes, Zechariah, I've heard your prayer. You're going to have a baby boy. And you're going to call him John. And John is going to wreck this world for the Messiah. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He's going to start changing things before he even sets foot in this world. And you're going to witness this miraculous moment where he's going to lead people back to the Father and prepare a way for the Messiah. Gabriel not only brings the promise of hope for Zechariah, he brings the promise of hope for Israel in this world because now is coming the individual who's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And he goes, here's the promise. But did you notice Zechariah's response? He had a lack of hope in that promise. He looks at me and goes, how can this be, dude? 
because I'm sure that's how he talked to the angel. But he's like, how can this be? I'm old. Have you seen my wife? I'm like, oh, brother. That's like the first thing in marriage counseling you learn. Don't do that, right? And he's like, but you don't get it, do you? We're really old. We can't have kids. I think Zechariah does exactly what we do. Is when we're in the midst of a difficult circumstance, we often have blinders on. And all we see is that circumstance. All we see is that moment in time. And Zechariah goes, don't you see it too? We're old. It ain't happening, boss. And I love the response of the angel here. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't remove the promise. He doesn't say, fine, forget you, I'm out. He looks at him and he goes, I am Gabriel. And I stand at the feet of the Father. And I come to give you good news, a promise, a hope that you need. And he looks at him and he goes, this promise is going to be realized whether you want to understand it or not. And he goes, because all you can do is talk, I'm taking your voice. Because you see what Zechariah was really good at was trying to convince himself by speaking that this would never happen. And he goes, well, since you want to try to do that, I'm going to take your voice and you're going to sit here and wait in silence and watch me work. If I was the angel, I wouldn't be like, no, because you're stupid, I'm taking your voice talking like that about your wife, right? But that's why I'm not God and not in charge. Probably a good thing. But like at the same time, he's looking at Zechariah and he's like, dude, you just need to stop talking. Because when you're talking, all you're doing is looking at your circumstance. And instead of doing that, you need to see the Father at work. And what ends up happening is Zechariah finishes his duties inside the temple, which I have to give him credit for. Like if an angel showed up and scared the, 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 the snot out of me and then was like, I'm taking your voice and here's a promise, I probably would have ran. But he stayed in there and he finished his obligations because remember, he was righteous before God and he fulfilled what he had to do. And he walked out and the people were like, yo, what took you so long? And he's like, and they were like, what? And they begin to understand something's wrong here. He can't talk. And they realized, oh my goodness, something happened to him in there. And he saw something. And Zechariah finishes his obligation. He goes home. And sure enough, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And you notice what happened there. Elizabeth, after she got pregnant, she pulls back and she puts herself in seclusion for five months. Much like Zechariah, she pulled herself away from everything. To be quiet and to listen. And she goes into seclusion. And as she's sitting there, she makes this profound statement. As she realizes God's promise is being realized, she makes this statement. She goes, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. You see, Elizabeth's response, and actually Zechariah's response at the very end of this chapter, in the very latter piece of chapter 1, they both worship. 
when they realized that, that, that God's promise was coming true, all they could do was worship. In fact, the first thing Zechariah did when his voice was restored was to praise God. When we understand that, that hope is not based on our circumstances, that it's not based on, on this plumb line, this measuring rod of what's happening in our lives at this moment. Hope is rooted in who God is, what he has done, and will be faithful to continue to do. But when we put our blinders on and we only see the moment, the circumstance, it is easy to dismiss that hope. It's easy when, when life is difficult, when life is hard, when you're feeling overwhelmed to go, this is all I see. This is all there is. There is nothing else. And what hope calls us to do is to shed those blinders and to recall who our Savior is, what he has done, is doing, and will continue to do. As I was thinking through this passage and about just what this looks like in our lives and thinking about the Christmas season, a Christmas movie came to mind, and it was this one. You might know this back from the 90s. It's called The Santa Claus, starring Tim Allen. It's turned into like a, a huge franchise, right? They had three movies. Now they have a TV show on Disney+. Plus. But the gist of the, the movie is this, is that Tim Allen's character is called Scott Calvin. Scott Calvin, by happenstance, becomes Santa. I won't spoil how it's fun to watch. But he becomes Santa. And that first night of being Santa is Christmas Eve, and he's taking the toys all over the world. And after a whirlwind night, he ends up in the North Pole having a conversation with this young person. This is Judy the Elf. They get back to the North Pole and they're having a conversation around a nice warm cup of cocoa. And he goes, I just, I can't believe this. None of this is real. It can't be real. He's like, my brain is not allowing me to comprehend this. And he gets up and he goes and looks out a window. And he turns around and he goes, wait a minute. Is that a polar bear directing traffic? And he looks at Judy and he goes, I see it, but I don't believe it. And Judy responds with this phrase, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. That's hope. Often in our circumstances, we go, I see this, therefore I can't have hope. And God goes, by believing in me, who I am, what I have done, it allows you to see the full picture. Often when we are in the midst of those moments when we feel hopeless, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like we can't catch a break, when we feel like our world, our family is crumbling around us, and it's only exasperated by this time when everybody else seems to be happy and have it put together. And we go, but we, we can't see that hope. God calls us to say, stop trying to see and understand. Believe and see for the first time. As followers of Jesus, hope is a part of who we are. We were crafted to have hope, to have hope that there has to be something more than this, that there is something greater than this, this world that just seems like it's 
just dying. There has to be hope when, when relationships are crumbling. There has to be hope when it feels like everything is overwhelming and I don't see a way out. There has to be something more. And this is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is just that. It's a call to us, a challenge to us to rest in that hope. To know that we serve a God who is above all. A God who is greater than anything in this world. A God who has conquered the very things that we feel are oppressing us. Which sounds really easy to say. But if you're in the thick of it right now, you know how difficult that is. And what I would love to do is just give you a few things to maybe help you along that journey this morning. And the first is this. The first thing that you can do is be honest with yourself, with God, and with others. When you look at this text, I think Zechariah and, and his wife Elizabeth were really honest with where they were at. But if I'm going to be perfectly real here, I think they also just kind of gave up on being honest with each other. It became something they didn't talk about. Something they only prayed in, in, in their deepest of hearts. I think if you're experiencing hopelessness right now, you know what that looks like. Because you feel like a burden sometimes if you keep bringing stuff up. You feel like it's just you and you're bringing everybody else down. And so we just kind of shuttle it away into that deep, dark place that we don't let anybody else see. I think for the first time, Zechariah was allowed to be honest with the angel, with Gabriel. I think it's partly why he responded the way he did. And I think what we need to practice is being honest with ourselves, with God, and saying, God, this is where I'm at. God's not surprised by where we're at. He's not caught off guard. He's not angry with you for where you're at. He's going to just come to me and experience the hope that I have. But I think we also need to be honest with others. And I think at the very end of this passage, we might miss this. But Elizabeth said something. She goes, my disgrace has been taken from me. So other people won't see that. And I think what happened for Elizabeth is I think, unfortunately, people kept asking her about why she didn't have kids. Kept asking her what the problem was. She felt like all eyes were on her. Everybody was critiquing her. And when you're in the midst of that hopeless season, when you have those blinders on, that's all you can see. And so everything is magnified, even when it's not that. Comments, questions, people checking in, feels like it's just, it, it's expounding on the problem. And yet God is going, when you're honest with people, we should be a community that rallies to one another and walks with each other and is for one another. We need to be honest with God, with ourselves, and with others. But we have to take it further. You see, we have to remove those blinders and remember who God is and what he has done. My friends, this is probably the hardest thing you could ever have to do. Because if you're in the midst of a moment where it just feels hopeless and overwhelming, it is really easy to keep these on. It's become a learned behavior. And we're okay with that. 
because it's, we're just in that moment. But what hope calls us to do is to peel those blinders off, to cast them to the side, and to say, I am remembering who my God is and what he has done. Because if he was faithful then, my friends, he is faithful now. And he is faithful tomorrow. And he is faithful forever. You see, because here's the thing. If you read through the Bible, you can definitely see how faithful God is. The providence of our God. The ways that he has answered, the promises he has made. And we can rest in that hope going, if he allowed for that promise to happen, that promise that had slim chance to none, to actually happening outside of the control of God, how faithful will he be today in my life? You see, when we remove those blinders, it allows us to see holistically, to see both now and how God has a plan for the future. But again, that's hard, right? It's hard to remember that when you're in the moment. So I want to give you a real practical resource here. And it's to make a list. And some of you here are, are probably people like me who either love lists or you hate them. I'm in the love category. I love to have lists. I have like tons of different things. I have a to-do list. I have all these different things because it makes me happy because I'm weird. But at the same time, I'm going to encourage you to go home today. And create a list that highlights how God has been faithful in your life from birth through now. Because here's the thing. You ask why birth? The answer is because some of you probably shouldn't have been here. Because some of you had complications at birth. You're like, why childhood, Nick? Why? Because some of you had experiences in childhood that have defined who you are, and you've watched God get you and your family to where you are today. And if you're like, man, Nick, I'm even struggling just to find a few things. Let me give you one. You're here now. That is a sign of God's faithfulness in so many ways. And when you create this list, what I'm going to encourage you to do is when you feel those moments of hopelessness, is to take that list and go, this is how God has been faithful. This is how God has got me through all the other stuff. And if he can do that, he can for sure get me through this moment. It's about changing our perspective. It's not seeing here, it's seeing here. And going, this is who my God is. And if he's faithful then, he will be faithful now. But another very real way of doing this is by doing exactly what Zechariah and Elizabeth did. It's praying. And we've done this prayer a few times here at Hershey Free in the past. It's called the prayer of release and receive. You see, often in feelings of hopelessness, we are holding so tightly to something and we're refusing to allow God to have control. We're refusing to allow for this moment to, to be released to him for whatever reason. Maybe because we don't trust God. Maybe because we haven't seen it worked out in our timing. Maybe because nobody knows about this. And we're just holding it so tightly. We're so terrified. We're so worried about what would happen if we let go. And oftentimes in those moments, we feel ourselves just clenching our fists 
because we're holding so tightly to whatever that is. And the prayer of release and receive is saying, okay, God, whatever I'm hoping for, whatever's overwhelming right now, I'm going to release it to you. But the receiving part is going, I am going to receive the goodness of my God. I'm going to receive the hope, the peace, the grace, the words that he has for me in this moment. My friends, I will tell you, this is probably not a momentary thing. The prayer of release and receive might be something you need to do day in and day out. And that's okay. It's what faith looks like worked out is continually, continuing to release the control we think we have and trusting God to be faithful with it. So I asked you in the beginning a couple of questions. I want to end with a couple. And my questions to you are this. What are you waiting for? And what are you hoping for this season? Bob and Andrew are going to come here in a moment, and they're going to lead us in a song of reflection called Seasons. What I'm going to ask you guys to do is to respond in your own way. Some of you may need to go through that prayer of release and receive. Of saying, God, I have been waiting, I have been hoping for this for so long. I haven't seen you working. God, I've been asking for healing to come. Because this cancer is overwhelming. God, I've been asking for my family to stop fighting. It's just not happening. God, I've been asking for you to remove the burden of mental health. God, I've been asking you to help me feel confident. To help my relationships flourish. God, I've been asking you for our family to grow. And for some of you, this season just puts that way back on. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to take this time to release and receive. Say, God, it's not in my control anymore. It never was. But I know you're faithful. You were faithful then, you're faithful now, and you'll be faithful forever. And I'm going to ask you to respond however you need to. Whether it's by standing and singing along, whether it's by praying or kneeling or whatever you need to do. And for those of you here today who maybe you're going, Nick, like, I'm in that category you talked about that, like, I'm not struggling with hope. Maybe look around and pray for those who are. Pray for the person next to you. The person you awkwardly met in the beginning. And consider what God needs to speak into their lives as he's speaking to yours. So I'm going to pray, and then I'd invite you to worship along with Bob and Andrew as we sing through the song seasons. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise that you've given to us in your son. We thank you for the hope that we have because of your son. God, I pray for my friends in this room, my family in this room. 
I pray for the ones who are feeling overwhelmed and hopeless in this moment. Help them to see the promise and the hope that you bring, that you alone offer to us, Father. May they hear your words today. May they find that peace, that rest, that hope they are desperately seeking. Father, I pray for my friends today who, Father, who are doing really well in that category. God, thank you for that provision in their lives. Help them to be ambassadors of hope to the world around them. When everything seems hopeless, Father, may they be a beacon of light on a hill. 